Welcome to the Whitefields Community Church Podcast. For more information about our church, including location and service times, visit us online at whitefieldschurch.com. If you are blessed by this message, please consider sharing it with others and leaving a rating or review on your favorite podcast app. Thanks for having me. Turn in your Bibles to the book of Psalms. This morning we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 6 in a message I'm entitling Saints and Sinners. And you can probably tell, wait a minute, I'm, I'm in the title. Yeah, you are. And so that means it's going to be a message about, well, you. Psalm chapter 1, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 6. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray for this church and for its pastors and leaders. Lord, I pray for their continued testimony in this community and around the world. Lord, I pray for these men and women. I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would nudge them, encourage them. Lord, I pray that you would place within them a deep desire to not just simply hear your word, but to understand it, believe it, and then be willing to obey it. And so, Father, again, we're so grateful for the gracious gift of Jesus and for the songs that he sang. And so, Lord, again, we commit this time to you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. And all the saints said, Amen. Psalm chapter 1, verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous." But the way of the ungodly shall perish. Again, think about our title, saint and sinner. There's probably been times in our lives where we were more likely to identify with one or the other. The Bible's sharp division is between the godly and the ungodly. Here are two men, two ways. Two destinies. In this psalm are two sharp descriptions. What the saint loves in verses 1 through 3. And what the sinner sincerely and then successfully manages to embrace in verses 4 through 6. You'll remember that psalms are Hebrew poems that were meant to be sung. It might come as a surprise to you, but there was only one thing that kept me from being a famous musician. (laughs) 
I have no talent whatsoever. <laughs> now, again, you guys know that a lot of people don't let that stand in your way, but I do have some famous relatives. My daughter-in-law sings like an angel, and I have a distant cousin who in the 1970s sang, precious and few are the moments we too can share. Yeah, some of you know that. Quiet and blue like the sky. I'm hung over you. Yeah, you see why. <laughs> you might have been trained as a musician. And if you were, then you're going to be familiar with the very famous middle C. What's interesting about the middle C is you can go up the scale or you can go down the scale. Those of you who growing up, you know, remember singing, do, re, mi, fa, so, la, ti, do. You know that. This psalm begins on a high note. And then it ends on a low note. The psalm begins with the Hebrew word translated blessed. In the original language, the word is plural rather than singular. We could translate the opening words, oh, how abundant is the happiness. Or, oh, the blessedness of the man. Or, oh, the multiplied happiness of the man. The godly man, the godly woman doesn't experience the drip, drip, drip of occasional blessing. There is this expectation of a gush, of a torrential flood of goodness and grace and mercy and gratitude that wells up inside of you. There are blessings for those who walk with God. And then the psalmist gives us dire warnings for the person who walks away from God. In poetic language, the psalmist describes three aspects or three degrees of the person who departs from God and then conforms to the world. We discover that we conform to this world when we accept its advice. We conform to this world when we become willing participants um, in its ways. And we conform to this world when we adopt the world's most fatal attitudes, contempt for God's revelation, disdain for God's word. And so we understand in the New Testament where Paul writes and he says, don't be conformed to this world, but rather be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It's the law of the Lord in verse 2 that serves as both a defense and offense for the wicked who counsel the saint to walk away from God's plan, to walk away from God's word, to walk away from God's blessing. And so this song, this psalm ends with the word perish. And so the psalmist sings about two men, the saint and the sinner. There are two paths, the road to glory or the fool's highway. There's two destinies, one with the Lord, the other absent the Lord, without God, without the Bible, without the plans and purposes, without the promises of God. And so it begins with the saint's path. Look what it says in verse one. Blessed 
Or, oh, how happy is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. The psalmist begins literally not with the power of positive thinking, but rather with the power of saying no, which in a way has an advantage for all of your children growing up, because isn't that the very first word that they understood? You're talking to them and you go, no. And they go, oh, I think I understand that word. <laughs> the saint, the person who's blessed, is marked by what they can't do. Not with what they will do, but what they won't do. And this becomes very, very important because in the popular culture, we live in a world where you're trained to say yes. When people are trying to sell you something. They're trying to get you to say, yes, my father, <laughs> my father was from Sicily and my grandfather. There really are two kinds of people in the world, Italian people and people who wish they were. <laughs> my Italian father on this car lot, you know, he would try and teach you how to sell a car. And so sometimes a car salesman will say something like, what will it take for you to buy this car from me today? And I learned early on, if you can solve world hunger and if you can eliminate the threat of nuclear annihilation, I'll buy this car from you today. And they'll go, no, 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 really, really. And I go, no, really, I'm not, I'm not buying the car from you today. The psalmist is singing a song of separation. The person who's blessed, the person who's happy, has made the decision to ignore the ungodly counsel that comes from every direction because there are popular voices that are telling you, please don't believe God, don't believe the Bible, don't believe what the Bible says about the most important issues. And we also don't stand in the path of sinners. What does that mean? Does that mean we can't have unbelieving friends? Does that mean we can't be uh, courteous to the unbeliever? That's not what the passage is teaching. Jesus was a friend to sinners, but he doesn't participate in their sin in order to maintain the friendship. The, Paul, the psalmist is using poetic language to warn the saint not to participate in the unfruitful works of darkness. We don't participate in the sinner's activities. We might think of this verse in simple but dramatic terms in this, in the, in this way. Number one, you have no reason to listen to ungodly counsel. What if I told you that the least qualified saint is more qualified than the most qualified unbeliever to give you hope, to tell you the truth about the gospel, about what it means to be saved? Number two, you have no reason to linger with sinful people. And number three, you have no reason, dare we use the term, lounge or sit in the seat of the scornful. And look at those words, counsel, way, seat. That means assembly or dwelling. These are serving as metaphors for the way we think and for the way we 
act, the way we behave. It's a description of an overall attitude. And so we might think of this in in, in part this way. The ungodly embrace ungodly advice. The sinner has his or her way in the sense that they're going to do what they're going to do and the scornful have their seat and we might think of the seat as the settled place in the Hebrew language. In other words, it's like the place where you have this overall attitude or worldview that informs the way you think and then the way you act. So the seated place is the settled place. Several months back, I had Mike Lindell, the pillow man on my radio program. And we were talking about different things and because he's a refugee from the 60s like me, he'd go right on. Almost everything that I would say So when I talk about the pillow, I'm not talking about my pillow. I'm talking about that place that occupies the thinking of people. And this becomes important because it's a description also of the scornful. Because the scornful are those who hold biblical truth, who hold revelation in contempt or disdain. And you have friends, you have family, you have husbands, wives, children. You probably know people that when you start talking about the Bible, when you start talking about sin and you talk about salvation and you talk about the coming of Jesus, they don't believe you. Now, don't get me wrong. We all have questions about God. We have questions about Jesus. We have questions about the Bible. And I've devoted my life, literally, to answering people's Bible questions, from teaching the Bible and answering Bible questions. As a matter of fact, I'm on the board of directors of a ministry called gotquestions.org. Gotquestions.org is the largest Bible answer ministry in the world. From January to September, we got 85 million hits. On, On the question, how do I receive Christ as my Savior? How do I give my life to Jesus? I wanna know Jesus 15,000 people per month are clicking on that button and they're, they're reading a gospel track. The scornful have already made up their mind about creation, about the fall, about redemption and reconciliation. The scornful have no desire, no interest And what God has said about the most important subjects in the world. The famous patriot Thomas Paine was also known for sitting in the seat of the scornful. He wrote, quote, as to the book called the Bible, it's a blasphemy to call it the word of God. It's a book of lies and contradictions and a history of bad times and bad men. There are but a few good characters in the whole book, unquote. Have you already made up your mind? about the Bible? Have you already made up your mind about what it says and what it means? You probably have friends who have already made up their mind. But part of the challenge that we have, the Lord willing, in God's grace and mercy, is to give them the gospel, 
to remind them of the revelation that's given in the word of God. So we see the saint's satisfaction with God's word in contrast. Look what it says in verse two, but his delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law he meditates day and night. The saint's delight in contrast with the ungodly is the law of the Lord. And here, when the psalmist uses that expression, the law of the Lord, he's making a reference to the word of God. Here, the law is the revelation that God gave to Moses in the book of Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. In other words, it becomes a a metaphor, if you will, for the whole word of God. And so it's the word of God that serves as guide and counselor. The saint has a different guide. The saint has a different counselor than the wicked. A.W. Tozier said long ago, he said, I was listening to a man preach a message and I have no idea what he was talking about, but he said a single sentence that captured my attention. He said, listen to the man who's listening to God. And that's going to be one of your forever choices. Will I listen to the voice and the voices that are telling me, no, open your Bible, read it, understand it, enjoy it, love it. The biblical meaning of the word meditation is different than what our popular culture or Eastern mysticism or transcendental meditation offers. The ungodly empty their mind. The saint fills her mind or his mind with what God has said on the most important issues. My friend Norm Geisler, before he died, was fond of saying, I'm willing to be open-minded, but I'm not willing to be empty-minded. Open-minded, help me understand, persuade me. Years ago, John Phillips offered this picture. He said, when we come into God's presence, open Bible in hand and say, speak, Lord, your servant hears. Then when we read the Bible in a method, methodical, meaningful, meditating way, seeking to understand and appropriate its truths, we ask the following questions, for instance, when pondering the sacred page. Is there any sin here for me to avoid? Is there a promise for me to claim? Is there a victory to gain? Are there blessings to enjoy? Is there any truth that I've never seen before about God, about Jesus, about the Holy Spirit, about man, about sin? What is the main thing that I can learn here? That, my friends, that is meditation. The Bible, by the way, is God's word. One old saint offered this advice. He said, quote, when you meditate, imagine that Jesus Christ in person is about to talk to you about the most important thing in the world. Give him your attention, unquote. I wish, Lord knows, Lord knows my heart, I wish my grandfather were still alive so that I could ask him the things that I was too young and dumb not to ask him, to listen carefully to what he had to say and to glean his wisdom from his experiences. You know, we find pleasure 
in certain things. But let me ask you maybe one of the most important questions that could ever be asked. Do you take pleasure in the word of God? Do you delight in it? Do you delight in what it says and what it means and the nourishment that it provides and the encouragement that it gives? The idea in this psalm isn't, again, simply reading God's word or even understanding God's word. And God knows as a pastor, I know your pastor wants you to read your Bible and wants you to understand your Bible, but he also wants reading and understanding to create belief and obedience. Because guess what? Obedience brings blessing in verse one. Disobedience brings ruin in verse six. It was the very famous preacher Spurgeon who wrote, quote, nobody ever outgrows the scripture. The book deepens and widens through the years. I have thousands of books in my library. This is the one book. This is the one book that I've never been able to outgrow. I've never been able to master it. Can you believe it? It's been almost 50 years since I've become a Christian. And I've taught through this Bible time after time. And there's still things that I absolutely do not know. And there's this sense of wonder that fills my heart whenever I look at it. In verse 3 it says, He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. I want you to connect the dots of the song. The saint is separated from sin and sinners. The saint is separated from the sinful advice and then separated to God and to God's word. And so this picture is like a tree planted by the rivers of water. And, and by the way, the Bible's using that metaphor, water. And it does so in a number of different ways in the Bible. When water is used for cleansing, it speaks of the word of God. When water is used of drinking, it becomes a type and a picture usually of the spirit of God. And so what's happening in our text? Separation from sin and sinner. Reflection and meditation on God's word. Releases God's Holy Spirit for reflection, refreshment, nurture, maturation. In the New Testament, in John chapter 7, Jesus, during the Feast of Tabernacles, he uses that metaphor. He says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will come rivers of living water. Later in that very same chapter, John writes, Jesus, after his glorification, we began to understand that this was a reference to the Spirit of God. And so, 
There are several things that the psalmist notes that I want to invite you to consider and maybe expand in your life. The first deals with prominence. He shall be like a tree. Now, usually when people refer to you as a tree, it's not a compliment. When you look at me, you, I, come, I, I, I don't dye my hair, by the way. It's really this color in real life. I have nine grandchildren, so don't let my youthful appearance fool you. <laughs> yes, I'm eligible for Social Security. And you go, well, that, you're not that old. And people will usually say, well, yeah, I mean, if, if you're a tree, maybe you're not that old. But if you get on the freeway down I-25 and you make it to I-70 and you head east and you're headed towards Kansas, you begin to notice something that there's fields and fields and fields. Whoever knew like a tree could be so exciting, my kids would go, look, look, there's a tree out there in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, it, it's prominent by its very presence. And that's why the psalmist is using that illustration. And then the second is permanence. He's like a tree planted. In other words, the tree isn't going anywhere. The, the grass withers, the flower fades. There are trees that live hundreds, sometimes even thousands of years. And so the saint is said to be planted by rivers of living water. Living water is, is in contrast to dead water, which is stagnant water, which is like a mud hole. And so it's like a river that continues to flow. It's an ever-present source of nourishment. And so the saint is said to be planted by rivers of living water. That speaks of position. Again, John Phillips writes, he says, quote, the droughts which bring bleakness and barrenness to others don't affect him. He has an unfailing source of life, unquote. In other words, seasons come and seasons go. Again, let's connect the dots. Separated from sin, separated to God and God's word, filled with God's spirit, and then we bring forth fruit. That sp speaks of productivity. The tree brings forth fruit in its season. It seems to be that some seasons are more fruitful than others. There are times for rest. There are times for growth. There are times for harvest. But there seems to be something more for the saint there's a lasting legacy for the saint. D.L. Moody said, all the Lord's trees are evergreen. I like that because it's easy for me. Outside of my window when I'm preparing my study, I can see a tree. There's a gigantic tree in my front yard. And in the spring, it buds. And then in summer, it comes to full bloom. In the fall, which we just experienced, the leaves turn color. And then in winter, there is this dramatic drop. The leaves fall. And my wife rakes the leaves. And then she says, you need to help me rake the leaves. And I go, I knew we should have planted a pine tree out front. <clears throat> They're evergreen. They're forever green. That's who you are. 
in the Lord. Other people bear the brunt of winter, spring, summer, fall. But there's a reoccurring theme in your life. No, Jesus remains the Lord. His promises remain true. And look what it says. And whatever he does shall prosper. There are dry seasons. There are prosperous seasons. The saint prospers in the ministry, in the family, in business, in friendship. So why does the saint prosper? Because the saint is living in friendship and fellowship and service to the Lord. The saint has disconnected from sin and sinners and and bad advice. Now, again, I'm not talking about some sort of radical isolation. What I'm talking about is a radical realization that when people deny what the Bible says about any given subject, they're not to be trusted. We can't confuse spirit-directed service with self-directed service. So the saints' blessings are contrasted now with the sinner's sad lot. Look what it says in verse 4, the sinner's portion. The ungodly are not so, but they're like chaff, which the wind drives away. Who are the ungodly? What are we to make of that term? And how are we to think about it? I'm going to suggest to you that the ungodly aren't simply people who do ungodly things. The ungodly aren't even simply people who don't think about God because I'm going to suggest to you that ungodly family members, friends, neighbors, people, this culture in which we live, they think about God all the time. They don't just forget about God, but I'm going to suggest to you that they make the conscious decision to leave God out of their thinking. And decision making. These are the people who have fallen prey to the incessant propaganda, the repeated lies that bombard the popular culture, the educational establishment, the popular media, that there is lasting satisfaction that comes from possession or passion or power. These are the people who don't include God in their thinking and in their living. Contrast that with the saint. The saint has separated from sin, connected to the scripture, the revelation of God. That's what claims our attention. The saint decides that they're gonna honor the Lord. We listen to godly advice. We separate from sin. We're fruitful and helpful. We are prominent and permanent and prosperous. But the psalmist writes, the ungodly, not so much. That's my translation of the ungodly are not so. Not so much. That's the contrast. The righteous love God's word and delight in it. The ungodly, Not so much. The righteous are rooted and grounded and stable. The ungodly, not so much. They're not fruitful. They're not enduring. They're not prosperous. The ungodly are manipulated and driven. And again, I'm not talking about prosperous in terms of materialism. 
I'm talking about a prosperity that comes from the settled knowledge of knowing and believing and walking in a fullness of life based on the reality that your sin has been forgiven and that heaven is your eventual destination. But the ungodly are manipulated and driven like chaff. Look what it says, which the wind drives away. The ungodly are empty husks. You live in the northern part of Colorado. There's farms everywhere. You see people seeding the soil. Can you imagine if you took chaff, an empty hull, and you planted it in the ground and you go, come on, come on. I want some corn. I want some sunflowers. I want something. What happens if you plant an empty husk? You get an empty crop. Because there's no seed inside of them. There's nothing substantive. They're manipulated. And this is what's interesting to me. It is the people in the world. They're the ones who claim to have the substantive views and the weighty arguments. Tell me again. Yes. Nothing became something and then it became you. Yeah. Well, see, you're laughing because of the ridiculousness of the claim. They claim that they have the substantive view, that you came from nowhere, and that's where you're headed, and life is a point of pain and a meaningless existence. And you need to be able to say, that's, that's not true. People are made in the image of God. People are sinners by nature and by choice, but guess what? There's a savior who's willing to save us. It's interesting to me. Paul concurs. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 12, now, if anyone, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold and silver and precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear for the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test each one's work what sort it is. It's possible that wind might blow in a helpful direction, but not usually. The Bible encourages us not to be children anymore, tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine. And so the saint is not to be characterized by immaturity, instability, and gullibility. You're no longer a child. Unless, of course, you are a child. And if you are a child, good. It's not a sin to be a child. But it is a sin to be an adult driven by instability, immaturity, and gullibility. The ungodly man or woman thinks that he or she might be the captain or the, the, in charge of their fate, but it's not true. Look what it says in verse 5. Therefore, the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment. That means in the final judgment... They're not going to be able to stand in the final judgment. The Bible speaks in Revelation chapter 20 of a judgment that's going to come where each person stands before the true and the living God and has to give an account of their life. But but according to the psalmist, guess what? They'll have no place to stand because they built their house on an emptiness and sand. They won't have a leg to stand on. The ungodly will be whisked away into an eternity where everything will change. 
And it says in verse 6, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. Think about that. The song began on this high note, oh, how happy. And now it ends on the low note, oh, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous. In what sense? The Lord knows the difference between the righteous and the unrighteous. You should think about that for just a moment. The Lord knows the truth about your heart and my heart. The Lord knows the truth about the person sitting next to you and behind you. The Lord knows the truth, even if you don't know the truth about yourself. Jesus said in the New Testament, my sheep hear my voice. You know, what's interesting to me. The Lord is not only aware of who the righteous are, but he approves of them and cares for them. It's been my experience that the unrighteous what they want more than anything is your approval. They want you to approve of their wickedness and sin and disobedience and rebellion. The unrighteous crave approval. But according to this, the Lord doesn't approve of the unrighteous. And again, remember the ungodly aren't simply those who do wicked things. They're the ones who stubbornly refuse to bow the knee. And so they perish. Look at the, that last word. The perish has a number of nuanced meanings. But in context, it seems to mean that the path leads to emptiness or ruin. Elsewhere, the word is used to describe a loss of hope or a frustration over plans. The New Testament thought is captured in Christianity's most famous verse, for God so loved the world that whoever believes in him wouldn't perish, won't perish, but have everlasting life. The Bible teaches an ultimate parting of the ways between the Savior and the unrepentant sinner. And so, consider the title, Saint or Sinner. It was almost 50 years ago when I received Christ as my Savior, and the song that was singing the night that I got saved went something like this, two roads from which to choose, the road to glory or the fool's highway. Two roads from which to choose. The rocky one or the Lord's new freeway. Choose before the Savior comes. The road to glory or the rocky one. Please decide before the Lord descends. The sweet road to glory or the bitter end. A choice. A path. A destiny. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thanks for this time and for your word. Lord, I pray for these men and women. I pray that they would be encouraged to continue to walk with Jesus into the future that he's assigned to each and every one of them. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You have been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Make sure to tap the subscribe button if you would like to have new messages delivered to your device every week when they are released. If you have been blessed by this message and would like to support our ministry, you can do so by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts 
or by giving a donation to our church on our website at whitefieldschurch.com. 